Welcome to Itak Dale, a podcast about Poland from Indiana University's Polish Studies Center. I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, your host. My guest today is David Ost, who's a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This year, he's at the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. He's been working in Poland since the late 1970s. In his 2005 book, The Defeat of Solidarity, he argued that the failure of the Solidarity Trade Union to challenge working class anger forced politics in an illiberal direction. He's been thinking about market populism then for over 15 years, and now is looking at why working class voters who originally skewed liberal have become key supporters of populist movements in Poland. Welcome, David Ost. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Well, I wonder if what we could do is start out by talking about what's been happening in Poland over the last couple of weeks. Um, and then maybe back up and we'll talk a little bit about PiS's rise to power and how it's formed a coalition inside Poland. So can you start by telling us about the protests that have happened over the past several weeks? Okay, well, since it's a podcast and people might listen to it any time, exactly. today is November 5th, 2020, where, you know, we're not talking about the recent <clears throat> presidential elections that's still ongoing in the United States, but rather, of course, about the big protests, uh, huge, the, the, the biggest since 1980s, uh, that have uh, happened in Poland over the recent decision by the Constitutional Court to essentially ban all abortion. So what we've seen, um, again, for about a month now, I think the decision was taken sometime in uh, uh, early or mid-October uh, in the courts. And in Poland, they had had already a very, very restrictive abortion law. This is something that happened in 1990 and was kind of an early sign of how the solidarity movement, once it uh, came to power in 1989, uh, was making accommodations with the Catholic Church, just trying to you know, ward off any kind of protest and without any real pressure or, or any push from society, they installed and introduced a very harsh abortion law that did nevertheless allow some legal abortions if uh, in, in case of severe damage and inviolability of the fetus. And so these were essentially the only abortions that were legal in Poland that were done maybe a couple of thousand a year. Uh, and the Constitutional Court made this decision that that's unconstitutional. Now, that might seem like, for those who are familiar with the United States, of course, you know, we have political courts in the United States, but this is even more so than that. Namely, that we know that the Peace Party, Law and Justice Party, led by Yaroslav Kaczynski, had tried to, had considered changing the law to ban all abortions, 
That was met with fierce protests in the street a couple of years ago already. Then they backed off from this. And in the meanwhile, they completely changed the constitutional court's makeup. Uh, and what seems to have happened is that Kaczynski told the new head of the constitutional court that you ought to take care of this your way. Let it be a court decision. Now, sorry for the long lecture, you know, just the, the, the kind of premises to this. So the court made this decision and it had been putting it off for a couple, for over a year or so. It had it on its docket. So, uh, it was introduced at this time, you know, to kind of keep, probably to keep attention away from the pandemic and problems there in Poland and things like that. And also as a kind of give back to the Catholic Church. But once again, this elicited enormous protests. Now, ever since peace came to power, there've been a lot of protests over its move to politicize the courts, to take over the media, change civil service law, uh, you know, to resuscitate, uh, reju what's the word? Um, you know, revive, what's the word? Uh, rehabilitate is the word like pre-war fascists who are now becoming kind of popular national heroes in Poland, right? Nationalist anti-Semites, of course, they were presented as, you know, as just good Polish patriots. Uh, but anyway, there were these kinds of protests in the past that brought out many normally politicized people. What was different about these protests is that they brought out absolutely more young people than ever before, and in a far more militant way, also against the Catholic Church. That's what's so new about this. Yeah, so maybe you can talk a little bit about the the way the role of the Catholic Church has changed since its, its alliance with the Solidarity Movement. Yeah, because I think the role of the church has, especially in the everyday lives of young people, has shifted dramatically in 20 years. Oh, yes, that's certainly true. Look, you know, in the 1980s, well, you know, there, there was the church always existed. It existed and functioned well in communist Poland already after the Stalinist time. So way back into the 1950s. Of course, you know, your listeners probably know or will recall that the first non-Polish, non-Italian pope was a Pole who became uh, uh, John Paul II, the Pope in 1978. Uh, and, um, you know, with Solidarity Movement broke out in 1980. And while Solidarity Movement felt very close to the church, the church was always kind of wary of Solidarity because here was a you know, a trade union, a secular trade union, many of them with leftist ideas, and the church, of course, is a hierarchy, wants to install what it can install. Um, after 1989, as I mentioned earlier, right, the church got a present from the new government in banning abortions and more and more um, uh, allowance of church interference in political affairs. But, um, you know, that's grown under, under peace to such an extent that there's been enormous funding, state funding, going to the most reactionary parts of the Catholic Church, uh, Father Ridzik in uh, Torun. Um, who, that's the, 
the man behind Radio Maria, right? Exactly, behind Radio Maria, right. So extreme that, for example, I remember listening to it probably about 20 years ago in the late 90s, you know, listening to it one time, you know, and, and, and there are two men, of course, men, right, having a kind of calm discussion. And it was relevant to the issue now because they were calmly discussing whether those fellow citizens of Poland who support, supported abortion rights, whether they could be considered Poles or not, whether they were Poles or not. So there's and, been and, this kind of very strong alliance between Catholicism and nationalism historically, but you, you're saying that it's become, in addition to kind of a general belief or cultural belief that to be Polish is to be Catholic, which is empirically not true, but, right. um, but that's the ideological formation. Um, it sounds like you're also saying that it's become, that coalition has become deeply involved in day-to-day policymaking. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, day-to-day matter. Right. So on that issue, of course, the two men agreed that, no, if you supported if you supported uh, uh, abortion rights, you were not a poll, right? You were something else, you know, and, and in recent years, right, they've tried to push these issues. They have, um, you know, catechism in schools. And while it's possible not to go uh, outside of the big cities, it's uh, very difficult socially not not to go, you know, but they've just interfered more and more in basic decisions that uh, uh, people make. And, you know, among young people today, among those who are very much part of the social media age, just like young people here, you know, that those kind of heavy handed tactics just just don't work. Right. And that's what's so, you know, interesting is like, you know, the church even now is like fighting to use the powers of the state, say, to ban all abortion. Uh, It's trying to use the powers of the state, right, to prevent any critical discussions of the church. Anytime there are debates like, oh, maybe, you know, you shouldn't be involved so much in day-to-day affairs, you know, the church will strike back and saying, these are the methods of totalitarianism. How dare you say something like that? Right. Totally, totally heavy handed. You know, the new minister of education, who is also a kind of lightning point, Minister Charnek is his name. You know, um, he's talking about banning gender studies from the universities. This is an illegitimate topic. He says LGBT ideology. This is the same as Nazism. It's Nazism. That's a pretty strong claim. You know, one of the questions I had, well, a couple of questions about the way this coalition breaks down. Why do you think that peace has decided to fight this battle on the terrain of gender? Why, why gender instead of, I don't know, class? Oh, well, great question. Well, look, first, you know, the, the part of these radical right movements, uh, which, you know, have classic similarity, you know, similarity to classic fascist movements in that they're extremely nationalist, a kind of falsely aggrieved nationalism. We're under threat. We have to hunker down the nation, a very vague category, which for these people means only what we say it means. 
right? The nation is under attack. They always need enemies, right? They always need those that they can organize against. In 2015, the enemy of choice were refugees, were immigrants, were Muslims, right? Peace came to power in 2015 at the height of the, uh, um, you know, refugee crisis, it was, as it was called, right? Uh, and, um, and uh, right, peace said, we will never let any of them in. And all kinds of nasty rhetoric. Yeah, so that's pretty, that's pretty standard for right-wing movements, right? That they're nationalist, xenophobic, that the, that the threat of choice is posed in ethnic terms. But I think this is one of the, the, not the first movement, but one of the first movements that has put particularly homosexuality at the centerpiece of their nationalist campaign. So it seems to me to be a, a, an unusual choice. Yeah, look, I mean, this actually has been going on elsewhere. You know, this uh, organization, or, um, um, Ordis. Uris. Ordo Uris, right, yeah. exactly. A kind of, you know, international Catholic organization, right? One that has been talking among itself that, this is the moment for a cultural counter-revolution. That is, we need to reverse all the gains that liberal culture, liberal tolerance has made in the post-war period, and especially since the 1960s, right? They're very strong in France, actually, you know, in, in Italy, in Latvia, I believe, right? That became like one of the parties also be, became strongly organized around um, LGBT and gender issues, you know, in Georgia so, as well. I'm sorry. In Georgia as well. In Georgia as well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think this is part of, you know, an attempt to say all of these kind of liberal progressive cultural changes since the 1960s, right? This is part of a pattern of more liberal culture gen generally and we want to try to reverse it, right? And so it comes as a defense of women, of course, right, of traditional women, you know, against those who are uh, trying to break down the family because it will hurt women as well. You know, it's, um, yeah, so, so, you know, I think this gender aspect of the right-wing attack is more widespread uh, than, um, yeah, then, then many of us think. Yeah, is this um, anti anti gender movement, anti LGBT movement? Is it tied closely to anti EU sentiment? Yes, usually so, right? Because uh, the EU has all kinds of laws and language about um, uh, uh, protecting against domestic violence, but using very progressive rhetoric. So for example, a big issue in Poland in the last year has been whether or not to repudiate the so-called Istanbul Convention. And that was something in EU past decision, although formally signed in Istanbul, Turkey has a kind of, has had a kind of associate, has had an associate membership with the EU. And so they signed this um, uh, this manifesto or this declaration treaty against domestic violence, 
But in that, in the language of that, there's all kind of language about gender, about gender rights, about women's uh, uh, individuality and right to choose. Uh, and so uh, uh, Peace has said, has considered, hasn't formally done it, but will repudiate this treaty, which the old government signed, right? We'll protect women in our own way, right? In this very old kind of Catholic way. So tell me something about the people who back peace. We've, we've certainly talked quite a lot about their opponents, the young people, digital natives in the streets. These are usually urban people. So who are the people who are backing peace and the people to whom this kind of rhetoric appeals? Great question. You know, I think there are three different constituencies, right? Uh, on the one hand, you have those, let's begin with, you know, those we've been talking about, right? Those who are, we can call them countercultural revolutionaries, right? Reactionaries, uh, maybe. Reactionaries, right. Counterculture, they want to fight against liberal culture. And, right, specifically reactionaries, let's go back to the past when things were great again, right? Uh, uh, let's go back to this um, uh, imaginary past. Although in Poland, it wasn't just so imaginary because before World War II, there was a very strong um, fascist, anti-Semitic uh, uh, movement there, right? Very powerful that led to things like, uh, you know, segregation of Jews in universities, right? Sitting on separate, separate benches and and all kinds of anti-Semitic laws, not just in Poland, this was throughout, <clears throat> throughout Eastern Europe, of course. So, okay, so you have these reactionaries, committed ideological reactionaries, that's one section. The other section, which is interesting because um, these, these were not present in the early 1990s, but they were in the mid 2000s. Um, and that's what I would call um, the kind of conservative right-wing nationalist intellectuals. Now, who are they? These are people who, after 1989, mostly agreed with the consensus that, look, Poland, which had been part of the East, we have to join Western organizations. So yes, that means we have to join NATO and the European Union. And we kind of have to suck it up to them, right? Because they call the shots we are beggars, not choosers. What changed matters is that in 2004, well, first in 1999, Poland, like most other countries, entered NATO. In 2004, they entered the European Union. That was this moment in which in Poland, like elsewhere in Eastern Europe, there's a real debate. Well, okay, who are we now? Now we're in these organizations, but what role do we play? And they could see that Poland was kind of, you know, not taken fully seriously within the European Union, right? Again, they were beggars, not choosers. They pleaded their case. And now they say, look, you know, no, Poland deserves better. We want strong actors here. We want to assert our importance, that Poland is important, Polish values are important, and that the liberal government has been a little too much or a lot too much sucking it up to the West, right? So, so there's you know, probably, it's probably not a coincidence then that these counter EU movements 
Um, also took off after EU funding slowed down dramatically in 2014-15. Yeah, I, yes, yes. Look, I mean, they don't want to totally bite the hand that feeds it, right? And, um, uh, you know, but they've also been clear, as they say, look, we can lose some money if we maintain our dignity, right? And, uh, you know, so, so, so you have a lot of these people who just like the idea of, Let's repeat Poland, Polishness, Polish power, you know, to get used to it. Now, I might say just, you know, in for, you know, two seconds, there's, of course, a debate on that. I mean, the liberals also say we want Poland to be more important. I mean, they're not anti-nationalist like peace charges. They just say we can do this more by cooperation right, showing our stuff rather than just yelling at them and saying, we want you to follow our policies, which is what peace does. So let me just add, right, that third constituency, which I think is crucial, right? So you have the reactionary, you have the right-wing conservative intellectuals, and then, of course, right, you have non-elites, you have the working class, uh, mostly, right, working class in uh, private manufacture. Uh, and also uh, the small small farmers and rural workers. Poland still has one of the highest percentage of rural workers in Europe, right? And these are people who, after 1989, for the most part, right, did not get ahead. They did not see their their uh, life chances increase. Many of them lost their jobs, lost their protection. Uh, the kind of social protection they may have had and often and, and did have under communist Poland. What are their options? Their options have been somewhat to move into cities, but mostly they're the ones who've gone en masse uh, to, to Europe, to the UK, to Ireland, to all over Europe to try to work, right? And, you know, there's this sense that, oh, right, we don't get dignity in our own country. We have to go elsewhere. So what peace has done, and this is very different than, say, uh, Trump, right? Because peace's rhetoric is very similar uh, to, you know, Trump's uh, rhetoric of nationalism. But as we know, Trump has not done anything for the working class except uh, speak, you know, loudly against corporations, but he hasn't done anything. But peace actually, right, in the first years did take some policies that, if they were undertaken by any left-wing party, would have been heralded by the Western and global left as like correct steps in the right direction. So for example, you know, they clamped down on these so-called junk contracts. A lot of people were being employed almost off the books, you could say, we might say here, you know, not paying their payroll taxes, which means they don't get covered for, you know, health insurance or for formal retirement later. They can be hired and fired at will, which is not a tradition in Poland, like in most of Europe. You know, so peace took action against against that, right? But that's and, almost socialist. I mean, that's a, those are very left-wing kinds of steps to protect labor. Yes, look, that's why I say they've taken some steps that were very, um, you know, that were progressive in that direction. Now here, you know, it's interesting, right? If we look at Again, kind of classic right-wing movements, because as I said, you know, I think you introduced as well, I mean, after studying the rise of the right in Poland, 
and writing about that already many years ago, right? I saw similar developments happening elsewhere, of course, you know, and I've been going very much into the history and actually that's what I'm trying to work on a, a, a book project now, right? About, about fascism and very much about its social dimension, right? Because, you know, if you go back to the 1920s, uh, and even before, say the, the the phrase national socialism. Now we all know, right? That was the phrase the Nazis mean, and so we all take it to mean as simply, you know, a euphemism for the Holocaust. Unfortunately, that's not the case, right? Yeah, you you point out in one of your articles that that we should take the term national socialism really seriously, in that it is. It is national in the sense that it's aimed at care for a nation defined ethnically so that outsiders to the nation deserve no care. And then it's socialism in the sense that it's about redistribution of goods and services to people who are part of the nation. And and I thought that was a really provocative argument, both because it, I mean, it makes the argument that contemporary populism shares features with Nazism, which is obviously an inflammatory argument by its very nature. But it's, it's also really provocative in that it tells us about a new formation, which is not right or left in its traditional sense, but something that is bringing together nation plus socialism again, um, rather than being on the liberal um, conservative axis. Yeah, or the rather than being on the liberal individualist axis, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what these classic right-wing communitarians uh, 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 propose, right? So yes, you know, look, classic fascism and national socialism before there was the Holocaust meant exactly that. Meant, I mean, if you go back, some of these terms were developed first in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties in France. Uh, uh, um, uh, Maurice Barr, Joseph Maestra, uh, I don't have a French accent, but um, uh, in, in, in many French intellectuals started taking this term seriously. And of course, this was a time when it wasn't clear really what socialism means. This was way before the Russian Revolution, right? Socialism just seemed to mean, oh, we should take care of workers as well, of the masses too, right, that are arising. But we don't want to do it in a left-wing way where they step and stamp out our Christian culture, right? We want to do it in a way that is loyal to, loyal to us. So yes, you know, this national socialism is redistribution and benefits for a small group. Now, one thing even, it's more narrow than what you said, right? You said, we'll do it for a nation defined ethnically. But what's different about the national socialists, you know, is that it's not, defined ethnically is one thing, but it's also defined by political view, right? By by creed, we might, political creed. That's loyalty. By, I'm sorry? By loyalty to a particular yeah, political ideology. And yeah, loyalty to our view of what Poland is or of what anything is. That's why that discussion among the Radio Maria people, are these people really Poles if they have this view on abortion? And they said, no, they're not Poles, right? We're not for that group. So this national socialism, what I call is 
a small solidarity as opposed to socialisms, democratic socialisms, large solidarity of everyone living here, right? But it is a solidarity of us, right? And you can join by shedding your liberal views and be and and arguing and promoting yourself and getting others to join our conception of the nation as we understand it, right? Then we will do something for you. Then you are not left on your own as the liberals would have you do. Yeah, you talk a lot about how uh, in the 90s that the liberal governments um, in their various formations really left working class people behind. Um, and certainly in my own work, I found that too. But the interesting thing for me is that it looks like many of these same working class people were benefiting from joining the EU, that, that working class towns were getting revitalized, that there were new industries being formed. So imagine that you're you know, a 40-year-old guy in Zhashuv, um, and Zhashuv's uh, looking a lot better, and there are new jobs opening. Why would you go for peace then? Why, why would you still be attracted to a populist movement if EU membership was bringing so much benefit? Well, look, you know, peace is never, you know, unlike, say, the uh, National Front, right, or the Brexit movement, peace has never, right, said we are going to withdraw from the EU, right? They understand that their voters and Poland as a whole is very pro-EU, right? The EU gets, as we talked about earlier, right, uh, Poland gets money from there, farmers get money. Uh, uh, for producing or sometimes for not producing, right? Um, and, uh, and the options to travel abroad are, are there, right? So, you know, peace like flirts with this anti-EU sentiment. We just say, we don't want them telling us what to do. But we, of course, want to be, you know, a loyal, a loyal part of that, you know? So, um, uh, again, you know what they're what they're proposing to those in Zhezhuv say uh, are that you know internally we're going to make things better for you, which in some ways they have, right? As we talked about earlier, and we're going to reverse those policies done in the 1990s. I mean, I could say something, you know, maybe just to say something about those policies in the 90s, because you're right. Look, you know, that's the great irony. You know, I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've been going to Poland since the late 1970s, you know, and was there for the Solidarity Movement in 1980 and, and you know, throughout the 80s. And then there's victory in 1989. Largely, workers were responsible for that performing Solidarity. And then immediately after, right, the government that takes power kind of in the name of solidarity is becoming, you know, joins in with neoliberal policies and, you know, sees that it's important above all to build up a middle class. That became the new slogan of the early 1990s, middle class, middle class, right? And workers don't matter much. Now, workers bit, got dumped. 
Elizabeth, you wrote the book on this, you know, your book, and I can tell our listeners, right, Elizabeth Dunn's book, Privatizing Poland, is very, very well known in Poland, you know, and so many people cite that, and they all wonder, why didn't any of us come up with the idea of working in a factory and trying to see what people are thinking, right? But that's, but that's a whole other topic, right? Polish academia has always been much more intellectual and never had much of a populist tradition like American academia still has. But you know, you showed in your book, right, that these workers who knew how to run things are getting marginalized. They're getting told that they're stupid, right? Told that they don't know what to do, that they're not flexible enough. And these people who don't know anything, but who inhabit the right new kind of persona or habitus, to use a technical term of Pierre Bourdieu, right? They assert this style and they become lionized, right, as those who will make Poland, right? And so workers got the message, you know, that they don't matter anymore. The government didn't take them seriously. You know, and in politics, as we know, it's not just policy that matters. It's also the political culture of parties. It's attitude, right? Yeah. Do you, do you take these, you know, are you accepting these people as part of your constituency? And for a while, right, I remember doing research on this in the early 1990s. And actually, it was in Jeshub itself. I don't know if I mentioned this to you or I may, it may be in my book. It was in Jeshub itself in like 1993 that I distinctly remember talking to a leader of the new liberal group that was in power and still winning elections, you know, and I said, well, you know, why aren't you trying to organize for among workers as well? And he looked at me and said, because we have nothing to offer them. We, we, we believe we just have to build this market economy best, they're going to suffer. And those are the policies. And I'm saying to myself, it's at that moment, among others, a lot of things that happened then, that I realized, oh, liberalism and liberal democracy is in trouble. If liberal democracy is in the hands of people who so disregard a crucial part of their constituency and regular people, then people, when they rebel against the bad economic policies, are going to fight against liberal politics as well. And that's what that's what we've been seeing all over. Yeah, it's exactly what's happened, that this was a constituency in search of someone to represent it. So I remember in in the early 2000s that a lot of working class people backed Andrzej Leper, who was an agrarian populist. Um, but he was really focused on the agrarian part of that. Do you think that um, that Leper sort of prepared the path for peace in terms of attracting rural people, working class people towards a populist movement? Yeah, absolutely. Look, Lepper did get a lot of support. And of course he was, he was so crude, right? Crazy. Okay. I mean, I never met him or even heard him. Did you? Oh yeah. I spent a summer following him around and he was dressing up as a knight and charging into the main square of Torun. He was having farmers dumping corn on the railroad tracks for train to block trains from coming in from uh, Western Europe. So he was a, he was a showman in really he important ways. Kind of performer, I guess a kind of tr- more, more Trump character. Huh? Uh, even surprisingly, even more performative than that in the sense of having these kinds of stage tableaus, but, but certainly people were attracted to that in the sense that they found someone who was willing to listen to them 
and to give voice to their concerns. And that was the first time we had seen that in more than 10 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of, I guess we could say Lech Wałęsa was partly inhabited that role. I mean, he was a real worker and electrician, always with a very uncouth style of speaking, right? Intellectuals used to make fun of him, of the way he spoke and things like this. You know, a very different kind of uh, messenger. But look, you know, that's a very important part of the picture, right? Lepers' organization of anger. That's a term I I use, I think, in politics, you know, we classically, uh, political science often says, who's going to aggregate interest? That's a concept. Political oh, no, I, I think you said once, I think it's the opening line of your book, you said politics is the organization of anger, which is the most absolutely capsulized, wonderful summary of how politics works that I've ever seen. I mean, it explains almost everything. Politics is the organization of anger. Well, thank you. Yes, I, I think that is that is crucial, right? Because, you know, we all have complaints. There are always things going wrong, right? Grievances are kind of eternal. But politics and movements are about, right, who's going to organize that discontent, discontent who's going to organize that anger and direct it for what purposes, right? And we can say more generally, right? Because I go on there more generally to understand all of these different cases. You know, I think political democracy, what we understand liberal democracy, depends upon how anger is organized. If and when it is organized around class dimensions, around issues of redistribution, then we can have democratic outcomes for all, if and when it's organized around identity, more exclusionary categories, then we get illiberalism and or fascism. So just to say a word about that, I mean, we know that in Western Europe, in the West, democracy was very far from being stabilized in the first half of the 20th century. There were fascist movements emerging everywhere. Liberal democracy seemed doomed. Why? Because, you know, liberalism said, we cannot do anything about the crisis. We cannot help you. And fascism emerged by saying, we will come and help a small group of people by fighting against these others, by killing the Jews, and by other kinds of methods, right? You know, and we will protect you. And what social democracy, post-war social democracy did was able to stabilize political democracy by saying, look, you know, our anger is directed against economic elites. We don't want to kill them. We want to tax them, redistribute their resources. They too can be part of the community because if we understand everyone is part of civil society as a citizen, then we want them to play a role. But, you know, the right wing always proposes identity-based enemies. They want to organize anger against others. Trump, as we know, right, has been a master of that from day one, right? And he's always doing that, you know? And, uh, you know, paying homage to other kinds of identities from, or, or, or you know, class interests from time to time. So yeah, I think it really is crucial. Politics is the organization of anger and how we organize that anger, how politics organizes that anger uh, determines what kind of political system we'll have. You know, one of the things that 
is really clear about what's happening in Poland is that this is also about a, a rural urban divide or even a small city, large city divide. So do you think that it's because, as is true in the United States, that there is a huge divergence in political culture in Poland between people from small cities or the countryside and people living in large urban areas like Warsaw or Poznan? Oh, yes, very much so. And in fact, that's something I've only, you know, I, I kind of didn't realize for a long time. But after traveling so much around Poland, right, it's so much clearer. You know, one of the interesting things about Poland, and your listeners may have encountered this, is that, um, how should I begin? How should I say it? You know, it may have also heard that when I was a little kid, I'm born in 1955. So, you know, I don't know, in the 60s, 70s, before I knew anything about this, you would sometimes hear so-called Polish jokes, right? And the Polish jokes classically were, were, were based upon this, you know, stereotype that, oh, Poles are dumb, right? Because you had, you know, illiterate Polish peasants coming here, uh, coming to the United States. But Poland, you know, as we know, we study it more, right? Poland for hundreds of years was the largest country in Europe, right? In, in, some, in some sense, the most civilized, right? In the 1600s, 1700s, very strong intellectual dimension as well. Poland's been very strongly divided. And besides hearing all of these Polish jokes, your listeners may have also encountered what we also hear so many times in Western societies. You hear about, oh, these great intellectuals, you know, Sigmund Bauman, you know, most recent one who come from Poland, right? And who have this very sophisticated and very deep kind of cultural view. So in, in Poland, you know, you've always had a powerful cultural divide between, you know, the cream of the crop of the intelligentsia, right? The intelligentsia kind of refers to a separate class and all of these other people who kind of serve us, right? I mean, that I think is the origin of what I mentioned a moment ago, the way that Polish academia doesn't have people like Elizabeth Dunn go into factories. Or even when I went to those same regions, you know, intellectuals had all kinds of statements about what was happening there. But I asked if they had contacts in these regions and they say, look at me like I'm crazy. No, we never go there, right? That's where others are, you know? And the schools are completely different in um, smaller towns than in, than in the cities. Yeah, so the intellectual divide, this kind of sense of culture and cultural entitlement is huge and is a big part of the resentment that lower classes have and that piece is also very well organized with its kind of anti-intellectualism. Oh yeah, I've always thought that you could mark this divide actually by the way people said the word outside. If you said nadvor, you were in the courtyard, you were from a kind of intellectual class that occupied spaces that had courtyards. And if you said napole in the field, you were part of a, a tradition in which people had to go outside to a field, not to a courtyard. Very and interesting. Can, I never never noticed that. You can mark it. You can tell exactly what social milieu someone is from by the way they refer to the outside. Interesting. But, but I think the other the other division that I'm really interested in, I mean, I think in these protests, first, first of all, you see 
the distinction between the metropoles and the hinterlands really distinctively that that people who are in what is the the backwards regions or Polska Bay are feeling excluded. They feel disrespected. They feel that their concerns aren't really being taken um, to account by people who are living in Krakow or Warsaw. Um, but the other divide I find really interesting is the generational divide. And this, all this talk, uh, you know, we talk about a gender divide or the way this is being fought out on the terrain of gender. But, but one of the figures that is being most demonized, I think, by the protesters is the so-called mohair berets these sort of old, older uh, women in their 50s and 60s who are being seen as a very conservative political force. Um, what role does that generational divide, do you think, play in what's happening now? Well, it probably is it's something that's probably happening literally as we speak, because as I mentioned earlier, Right. What's been so remarkable about these protests is that you have had many women coming out from the culturally marginalized places where they feel more vulnerable, where the Catholic Church is an authority. And nevertheless, there, too, you have young women coming out, demonstrating, yelling at the church, yelling at the church. No yeah, one's first. This is the first major confrontation with the Catholic Church in decades. Yeah, and, and you know, and you always had a left there, but, you know, you don't yell at the church in Poland. You know, I, I just saw a discussion of, you know, two women uh, journalists in the sophisticated magazine Politica, and they were talking to, you know, it was a published conversation, and they said, do you understand these young women? He says, you or me, we never would have dared to tell the priests, and I have to use this language because that's been the slogan remarkably, but tellingly of these protests, the major slogan that the women have said to the church and to the government is fuck off. It's amazing that that has become, you know, that was their slogan. And these women are saying, we might have thought that, but we never would have said something like that. How is it possible that young people are saying it and from outside of the cities. So I think that generational conflict that you talk about, we're going to see much more of that now because those same women who were yelling that last week, this week, uh, are seeing their grandparents, right? Their grandmothers who, are, who, who can't believe themselves what they've been hearing, right? And these young women are going to be explaining to them now and over the Christmas table and, you know, six, eight, seven weeks from now, you know, and um, yeah, so 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 I, I I mean, here you see something that is new, right? This right, kind the, of and the generational divide is cross-cutting that rural-urban divide in and creating new kinds of coalitions that we wouldn't have expected. That's right. Before. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Again, and it's only been around these issues around around this issue of gender rights and abortion, which again is so remarkable because there was. So, you know, abortion was essentially all but abolished anyway. The only, there was no way really to get a legal abortion unless your fetus was very specifically damaged, right, and inviolable. Uh, so there was, you know, so limited. Estimates are that, 
you know, there's a whole kind of underground abortion system where you uh, go to a neighboring country because in all the neighboring countries, uh, uh, abortion is is uh, is legal. Um, you know, so oh yeah, I remember. I remember twenty five years ago getting on a bus from Zhezhov to Bratislava, um, and it was filled with retching women. No who kidding. were oh yeah morning sick and on their way on their way to Bratislava for an abortion wow okay well you know one hears that a lot and that's been the kind of thing that you know the Polish government for all its conservativeness is not doesn't even mention this right doesn't try to crack down on it but again these protests while they wouldn't while they don't affect that still brought out this remarkable opposition because, you know, that's where it gets back to, right? The church's heavy-handed tactics are coming into conflict with women growing up in a social media era, right, of kind of mocking authorities, which is common, you know, in social media, uh, and, um, you know, of just believing that, uh, that <laughs> they are independent subjects and thoughtful thinking subjects, you know, who have their own rights and their own ideas and don't want to be uh, uh, told by others how to behave themselves personally. So it's also a conflict between collectivism and individualism in important ways. And we'll see how that plays out. As I understand now, the decision of the Polish tribunal is on hold. Um, maybe you can tell us the status and what you think is going to happen next. Oh, yeah. So this is this is this is remarkable, too. OK, so um, technically, the constitutional court, the equivalent of our Supreme Court, but, you know, they decide on constitutionality of laws. Constitutional court makes decisions that are final and technically, they are final when the law, when the decision is published in the federal the equivalent of what we call here the Federal Register, the official document. Now, Peace is the first one that in 2015, when the Constitutional Court was not yet under their control, the Constitutional Court decided that some attempt by, by Peace to totally alter the court system was unconstitutional. The constitutional court decided that. And Peace decided that, you know what we'll do? We won't publish it in the register. Even though the constitution says that court constitutional court decisions must be published immediately. Yes, watch immediately. And, and, and Peace just didn't do it. And so they say, on what grounds? They say, because we don't agree with it. Again, a, a kind of totally illiberal authoritarian gesture, right? We'll only do this. So now that's why it's on hold. Because once again, for other reasons, there are all these protests. They don't want to publish it because they feel that will bring out more, um, more protests. So they're trying to come up maybe with some kind of compromise. But, you know, the protesters are saying compromise. We already had a compromise that a banned abortion. So, yeah, it's a, a kind of tense situation. Peace is trying to kind of get out. They didn't expect the demonstrations of this size and of this extent. Right. And peace for the first time. Right. It, it, this has given uh, the biggest uh, uh, blow to its approval ratings in the last five or six years. They've lost 
uh, about five, six, seven percent uh, in in opinion polls right away. So, you know, yeah, these kind of shenanigans of again violating the Constitution by not publishing a, a, a decision immediately, but you know, because they're trying to cover themselves somehow. Yeah, well, it sounds like to be crude about it, that fuck off goes both ways. If you are the ruling party and you've been given an order and you say, fuck off, we're not going to do it, then the response from the protesters might be in kind. But that is not, while that might be a great stance for organizing anger, it's not uh, a stance that produces many viable political paths forward. So we'll see how peace gets out of the um, cul-de-sac that it has put itself in. Yeah, look, exactly. I mean, they're in a tough situation there, you know. But I mean, look, the decision, Kaczynski's decision to have the court vote on this and to ban, you know, ban even more abortions and to suck up even further to the church is is part of what seems to be its agenda in the second administration, right? Peace won power in 2015. It got reelected in 2019. And then the president, also a peace uh, guy, got reelected now in 2020. So they, they have now several years, the second administration, no elections to counter them. And they've been very clear that, you know, our aim now is to try to right, transform elites, to dig deeper, to root out oppositionists. And it's going to be a very tense time in these next years, right? The the, the uh, abortion thing is just the beginning of it. I, me I mentioned, you know, this minister Charnak, who was appointed head of um, education, uh, the education ministry. Um, incredible power for schools and universities, right? One with really no academic record himself, right? And one who just says things like, you know, LGBT is is uh, uh, fascism is um, you know Nazism and things like this right he's talking about again banning gender studies uh, any universities that allowed their students to participate in protests even though the universities are online anyway but says you know we will take grants away from you you know they've been very hardline here and the next bill that within a year or so, they're probably likely to uh, push through is something like was done in Hungary to try to make the press, because they still have, you know, an independent press in Poland, it's still there, uh, but they're going to try to make it more difficult to uh, publish, uh, to publish those press by having what they call Polonization of the media which means that uh, all of the capital must come internally from within Poland. And why that's a problem is that peace, as the head of the government, they already will not sign any contracts for regular governmental business with opposition, opposition political mm -hmm. parties. And people know if you want to do business with the government, you better uh, take positions that support it. Uh, and so the independent press has has sought some funding from abroad, right, on the market who owns some of their shares. And that becomes an opening for them to say no foreign capital, only domestic capital. And that's been something that, you know, this is why you could say these right wing governments 
are trying for a very extremist and exclusionary public sphere, they're doing it in methods different from that of classic fascism, uh, very, very much different from those methods. But the aim is to uh, uh, eliminate a sizable opposition uh, and to only get our views across. Yeah, very challenging times. David Oz, thank you so much for being on Itak Dale. We are looking forward to seeing your book come out, hopefully you think next year. And, uh, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you, Elizabeth. Thank you.